Today, um, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Back to the Future. And if you uh, haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, or maybe you're here for the first time, just to give you a sense of what we're doing is we're focusing on Old Testament uh, lessons and stories and, and, and looking back to the time before Christ uh, walked the earth uh, to look for threads of, of God's plan of salvation, to look for evidence of Christ in the Old Testament, and, and to look to the promises that uh, we have because of God's activity in the past. So this morning, before we look at our, our story from uh, Numbers 20, which Steve just read, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you, Lord, for this new day. We thank you for your activity in our lives, for the fact that you took the initiative, you reached out to us when there was nothing that we could do. You reached out and, um, and you gave uh, your son that we might uh, have a relationship with you. Father, we pray today now as we look at your word, that uh, your words would come to life in our lives and in our church. Um, help them to change us and help us, Lord, to become more like Jesus in our thoughts, our actions and attitudes, our values, uh, our beliefs. We ask this through Christ our Lord, through whom we pray. Amen. Have you ever in a moment of, of anger or rage done something or, or said something that led to severe consequences for you or, and or others? Anybody? No? Few? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, on June uh, 18th, 1972, an airliner crashed uh, at Heathrow International Airport in London, England. Maybe some of you remember the story. 118 people died in the wreckage. It crashed right after takeoff. The investigation that followed revealed that the pilot had been very particularly upset and angry that day because uh, of the way that an airline strike had just been settled. Uh, as he took the plane off the ground, he noticed uh, right away that it was pulling badly to one side. And he, he realized that the men who had loaded the cargo had not loaded it properly and it was tilting to one side. And he was angry and frustrated and he exploded in a rage. He overcorrected and jammed the controls and it crashed and all on board were killed. Anger, Benjamin Franklin once said, is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. An old Arab proverb says, anger is the wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. You know, when we are really angry, we don't think rationally, do we? we that's where the, the phrase, I lost my head, comes from. We, we can't be clear-minded when we're when we're, we're full of anger and rage and we're, and we're hot-headed. You know, we know today uh, because of, of, uh, of studies that there are measurable physical reasons why heightened anger affects our ability to be rational. Uh, when we're angry, uh, our adrenaline flows faster and our strength increases by about 20%. The liver pumping sugar into the bloodstream demands more oxygen and, and from the heart and the lungs. The, the veins become enlarged. And the blood supply to the problem-solving part of the brain decreases because under stress, more blood is sent to the body's extremities. Anger is an emotional condition that the person, when we're in it, it means that we're beautifully prepared for a brawl, uh, but we're poorly equipped to contemplate, to think, and to reason. We lose our heads. Well, in, in the passage that was read from Romans 20 today, there's a story of a man, Moses, who worked 40 long, hard years. 
uh, toward accomplishing his mission. His mission was, was simple. It was given to him by God. He was to take God's people and, and deliver them to the promised land. And yet, because of a moment of anger, he turned himself away. Let's, uh, let's listen again to the last four verses, five verses of Numbers 20. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. Now, a question for me pops up right away. Why did Moses receive such a severe punishment for what seems to be a fairly minor infraction? Instead of speaking to the rock, as God had asked him to, he strikes it two times. Why such a severe consequence? I mean, Moses has, has followed God for many, many years. He left his powerful station in Egypt as, as one of Pharaoh's family to stand with his people, the, the Hebrew slaves. He, uh, he spent years in exile in the desert before responding to God's call through a burning bush to go and to be God's agent of delivering the Israelites from slavery. He's responded in faith, at least most of the time, the majority of the time. He stepped up, he confronted Pharaoh, he's done miracles, he's guided his people, he's put up with stubborn, rebellious, complaining, grumbling people. Even his own brother has been a problem. You remember the story, uh, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and his brother Aaron yields to the pressure of the people and they build a, a golden calf idol. At every turn, Moses has had challenges and through God's strength, he's been up to them. And now, after all that, because he didn't follow God's commandments and directions uh, exactly, now that they're on the verge of the promised land, after 40 years in the desert, now he's denied entrance? Parents, have you ever overreacted um, to something one of your kids did? I'm I'm guilty. Have you ever given them a consequence that was much too severe for what they've done? Guilty. Is this, what, is this what's happening with, with Moses and God? Did God overreact? Because at first blush, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. So let's dig in a little bit and, and see what's there. But, but, but while we do that, before we do that, let's set the content text a little bit. Let's set the table. Um, Moses and the Israelites have been in this situation before. And they say that those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. So obviously, they didn't learn the first time around. You see, back in Exodus 17, we find the Israelites in the same scenario, wandering around the desert, hungry, thirsty, looking for somebody to blame, grumbling, and the focus of the blame is, again, Moses. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 17, or you can follow along on the screen. The whole Israelite community, verse 1, set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? As Yogi Berra once said, it's deja vu all over again. Now, this, uh, this scenario, this story in, uh, in Exodus 17 happened several years before Numbers 20. Well, Numbers 20 took place toward the end of the 40-year period of, of wandering in the desert, just before the Israelites entered the Promised Land. Exodus 17 took place toward the beginning of the 40 years in the desert, just after they had crossed through the Red Sea and, and just before Moses receives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So here we are again, the same scenario. People are grumbling. They're angry. They're ready to attack Moses again. And they look around and see things are not going well, and they point the finger at Moses. And, 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 but there's a difference in the story. It's the it's same argument, same scenario, but different people. Because if we recall, uh, because of rebellion of the people, God uh, gave a punishment to the people of Israel and said those who complained early on in the 40 years would not live to see the, the new promised land. And so there's a different generation, but the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Different generation, same results, same attitude. And, and, and verse 3 says that they quarrel with Moses. And quarrel in Hebrew is the word rib, R-I-B, a, a legal term for a lawsuit, sort of a, a tort. They were taking Moses up on charges of not taking good care of them. And God viewed it differently. God took it personally. He said, because you're complaining against Moses, you're complaining against me. Look in verse 13. God tells Moses to call the place Meribah. And the three middle letters are R-I-B, the place of complaining. So instead of giving God thanks for sparing them, for taking them out of slavery, for delivering them from, from that awful life in Egypt, they not only... Um, they don't give thanks, but they, they complain, they grumble, they quarrel as if God has wronged them by giving them their freedom and giving them their lives. At the center of it all is their refusal to believe that, that God is good, that God has their best interests at heart. Uh, they, they could not and would not believe that God would be faithful to his promises. And, and, and if you think about that, that is the essence of faith, the belief that God is good and that God will keep his word. And their anger and frustration blinded them to the fact that for 40 years, God had provided them with everything that they needed. Let's recount what he's done. Just a few of the things. God gave them manna in the desert when they were hungry. God gave them quail from heaven when they were hungry. He protected them from Pharaoh. He gave them the Ten Commandments so they would know how to live. He directed them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. He delivered water from rock before. And yet they complain and they grumble and they doubt God's goodness. 
You know, when we dump on others and we complain, often the root problem, we're not always aware of it, but often the problem is that we're, we're angry at God for the way things are going, but we act as though we don't have a complaint with Him. We know how foolish it would be to shake our fist at God, so we subtly do so by shaking our fist at whoever happens to be in our way. We become angry with spouses, kids, friends, co-workers because they've let us down. But our anger is, is rarely directly caused by their failures. Our anger at others is really just unspoken frustration with God's providence. If God is in control, we may think, why is everybody around me so incompetent? You know, it's hard to always be looking at the big picture and to remind ourselves that God is still at work when everything else around us seems to be unglued and when our needs don't seem to be being met. But we must constantly return to the foundational twin towers, twin truths of our lives. God is sovereign and God is merciful. And to put it in, in the simple terms of a children's prayer that we pray before dinner, many of us, God is great and God is good. We'll find the Christian life a whole lot easier if we'll remember that. Otherwise, we become angry and frustrated and complain when we forget one or both of those truths, that God is good and God is faithful. So we, we follow these events through the wilderness in Exodus 17 and Numbers 10. And, and as we look through the rest of the story, time and time again, God's initial reaction to sin of the God's people is to give them consequences. But this time in Numbers 20, God's response seems to be rather quiet. God settles the issue not on this tribunal of justice to sentence these rebels with, on, on, according to their deserts, but on the basis of grace. He is going to give them what they want and what they need despite their anger and complaining and disbelief. You know, I imagine Aaron and Moses' faces pressed to the ground in the tabernacle, wondering what the Lord is going to do next. How is he going to respond to this sin? Is he going to threaten? Is he going to punish? Send thunderbolts? Is he going to open the earth and swallow them up like happened uh, earlier? That's a formula that they expect. After all, God hates sin, so God must punish sin. That's true, but God also offers grace. But Moses in the story wants nothing to do with grace. He's angry and he wants justice. Look what God speaks to Moses in verse 8. He says, take the staff. Verse 9 tells us it's the staff from the Lord's presence, the tabernacle, Aaron's staff, the one which sprouted leaves and flowers and almonds in the past. And that staff, particular staff, was kept in front of the two tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, it pointed to a mediator, who, one who was dead but came to life, who would be the answer to God's, to God's perfect demands found in his law. And Moses was to take that, that staff, the staff that pointed to life, and he was to speak to the rock. But that was too gentle and kind for Moses. And so he responds, he kind of injects himself in the scenario and adds to what, he kind of goes off script here. Instead of doing what God says, he says, Listen, rebels, must we bring water out of the rock. You can hear his frustration, his disdain, and his, his judgment. He sets himself up as judge over them. He sets them up, uh, himself up as a deliverer. And yet, there's a, there's a rub there. Anytime we speak to another person who has offended God, but we forget our own sin, our anger becomes quickly misplaced. And we fall into the trap that Moses did. You know, ironically, Moses points out 
They're rebelling against God just as he himself rebels against God. Moses refused to believe that God was faithful when people were faithless. And so he takes Aaron's budding rod, the bud that was spoke of life, and instead of speaking to the rock and trusting God to provide, he strikes the rock not just once, but two times. God does not threaten the people with destruction here, but, but Moses does. He speaks judgment where God speaks and offers grace. And that's why Moses received such a harsh punishment for the episode. He tried to play God. He tried to, to be God in this scenario instead of doing what God told him to do. Where God offers grace and mercy, Moses was offering anger and judgment. And when we treat others more harshly than God himself treats them, then we're in dangerous territory. Verse 12, God says, you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy. Now, now what is the issue with God's holiness here? Not just that he is perfect, but that he is utterly different. He is not like us. He's able to maintain holiness and show us grace. God's forgiveness is not antithetical to his holiness. Justice and mercy are not contradictory in God's world. God forgives because he is holy. His holiness demands a sacrifice, yes. And that sacrifice was Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. Now, now how do we see Christ in this passage? Well, in the passage out of Exodus 17, God says this, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. You know, God uses language of judgment, but it is he who will stand before Moses. He identifies himself with the rock, and it is the rock which is to be struck. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, it is always we who stand before God, we who deserve the punishment. But here, God takes his place as the one who is to be struck for our sins. The Apostle Paul uh, uh, points this out in 1 Corinthians 10, 3, and 4, where he says that the rock which accompanied them in the, in the, in the desert was Christ himself. Listen to what Paul writes. They, the Israelites, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul understood that the, the rock which was at the beginning of their 40-year trek was the same rock at the end. When they began their journey, the rock was to be struck. The image could not have been more clear to the Israelites. Christ became the one judged not the people. He bore the punishment for their sins of disbelief that God would provide for their anger at God not being good to them. But in Numbers 20, instead of striking the rock, Moses was to speak to it because there was no need to strike the rock again. All that was needed were words of faith that God would provide because Christ is sacrificed once for all, not repeatedly for every time that we sin. His death is all sufficient for our failures. Once he died for our sins, he is not punished again. But rather, we in faith must come to him and speak and believe. You see, that's what's so dangerous about what Moses did. Not only did he, he treat the people more harshly than God did, and not only did he not honor God's holiness, but he, in this instance, through his actions and through his words, taught the people a subtle lesson, unintentional, I'm sure, that God's mercy and grace were not enough. And if Christ was the rock in the desert, 
he unintentionally or not taught them that Christ alone is not sufficient to meet our needs. That he, Moses, had to get involved. That he had to insert himself. That God's action was not enough. That Moses had to strike the rock and scold the people. And if God had not corrected Moses, if he had allowed this to go uncorrected in Numbers 20, it would be a message to the people of Israel that human activity is needed for us to be saved. It would be anti-gospel. Christ demonstrated, and the Bible teaches, that we are saved not by what we do, but only by what Christ has done. Exodus 17 and 20 and Numbers 20 point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation that is fully revealed in the New Testament. And even in the desert, God could not, would not, even with a man like Moses, let the people buy into bad theology. We cannot and we must not add anything to what Christ has done for us. Christ alone is the one struck for our sin. And Jesus alone is the rock out of which pours living water, life for our souls. God speaks to that water in Isaiah 41, where he says, God will hear our cries and give us rivers, which flow on barren heights and springs in the valleys. The deserts will turn into pools of water and the parched ground into springs, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. To believe anything else is not to trust God enough to believe that what Christ has done is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for, um, uh, for Christ being our rock. And we thank you that out of Christ and his death on the cross, out of his sacrifice for us, comes streams of living water. Lord, help us to draw near to Jesus, to trust in him and him alone, not to attempt to add anything to what Christ has done through our words or our actions. Christ alone, we trust in you. Amen. Thank you.